So, uh, so I look at that and I just think that is absolutely charming. Uh, it just makes me want to go in Vietnam straight away. Uh, you should at least go and visit. <laughs> I think it looks gorgeous. And I'm just wondering, uh, like we saw a lot of images there of uh, the land being cared for mm. and cultivated and um, things being produced or you know, made from things that have come from the land. Mm. And I was just wondering if you could share a little bit about uh, what that community looks like now compared to some of those images. Is that a reflection of what's happening now? One of the first things, I love looking back at these pictures, and one of the first things that always strikes me is what's the same. And I mean in terms of the literal physical things, the same spades and shovels, that old tractor is still used, the same washing line. And there's this, it's sort of the opposite of consumeristic ideals. If something is, is working and is serving the purposes, there's no need to go and upgrade to the next thing because it's come out. And that comes from a deep reverence for creation um, and a desire to participate in, in caring for and stewarding God's good creation. And if you look back to the 11th century, there was this German nun called Hildegard, and she wrote about understanding the green parts of creation as living uh, symbiotically with that. She was clued into environmentalism a thousand years ago. And that uh, so manifested in the monastic life. So before I went in to the convent, I had done a little bit of gardening. We'd had a few fruit trees where I grew up. But I'd never started each day by going out and getting my hands in the mud and actually thinking, where has my food come from that's on my plate? How have I participated in this? Who has been involved? Whose labor? Who has paid the price for this? And so there's an ethic that comes out of living this way, which I carry with me now, which I'm so grateful for. And also it's so biblical. Because you know, I always understood, we read the parable of the sower and the parable of the vine, and it's all there. But I'd read them as ideas and symbols. But now I was coming into chapel with mud on my hands and the bottom of my hem and going, yeah, I, I understood it in my body. So beautiful. I love, I love um, that you've mentioned that because we've obviously looked in this community at the sacramentalist room and we've been talking exactly about that. Uh, the idea that uh, God's given us a good world, a beautiful creation to care for. And uh, our speaker that spoke on that stream spoke specifically about caring for broken things in a broken world, not just discarding and upgrading. And it's just beautiful to see that sacramental sensitivity lived out in your community. And we'll hear a little bit more about the contemplative experience that you had in that community as we go through mm. uh, our, our journey with you about your formation. Mm. Uh, but I would like to just invite you to go back in time and think about young Cara, maybe as a young girl or a teenager, uh, but in your early years of your life, when you were growing up, Mm -hmm. um, did you see signs of an early interest in this kind of spiritual formation? Were you actually a contemplative child? Were you a, like a, you know, sit by the ocean, gaze there for hours? You know, what, what was young Cara growing up? I love this question when you, when you sent it through to think about, because I'd never posed it to myself before. I'd never thought sort of what are the early onset symptoms of contemplation in a child. <laughs> uh, and. It took a, a, a good lot of thinking to try and probe through those memories. 
And I didn't grow up in a religiously observant household. But I think what manifested for me as a child, contemplation is about being attentive to things, about looking at things with such appreciation and interest that you become absorbed in them. Contemplative prayer is when you turn that kind of gaze on God. But I think an interest and in a, a sort of turning oneself inside out because one is so interested in something uh, is what I was like as a child. And whether that was the natural world or being really involved in a, uh, a game of pretend or a storybook, but also appreciation of humanity. I remember we would be taken to the ballet to watch really elaborate, exciting performances, but also whenever we had tradespeople to the house to clean the gutters or fix the sink, we were told, watch this person, be interested in what they're doing. This is as kind of noble and so to, to be interested in the human person deeply uh, is where I, I think that same mm, constitution of my personality, which is my spirituality, was there. That's so beautiful because, you know, and that makes a lot of sense if we think about God as God is the one we worship, but he's given us icons in mm. people. And so to be curious about the other and to be attentive to people mm. is a form of holy contemplation. So that's such a beautiful thing. So you've mentioned that your family wasn't a religiously observant family. So um, how was it then that you came to faith? Um, so my, my mum grew up in a Catholic household and once she left high school didn't really want anything more to do with religion, didn't have a personal faith. But she, unbeknownst to me, kept up the practice of going to midnight mass, so the Christmas nighttime service every year. And when I was seven, I woke up in the night on Christmas. Uh, I was excited. And my mum wasn't in the house. So I, I, couldn't, I couldn't find her and I was a bit worried. And then I sat on the bottom step of the kitchen stairs and I waited for her to come home. And when she did, I said, where have you been? What's so exciting and interesting that you leave the house in the middle of the night at Christmas? And she said, I've been at church. And I said, I'm not quite sure what that is. Can you take me there? And so she took me along to our local Anglican parish. I think she hoped I would get bored. It's been 23 years, still pretty interested. Um, but we were, and she was very, very good, despite not having a personal faith. She never spoke about that. We got very immersed in the life of the parish. Um, she was making morning tea and delivering newsletters. And I, um, I was lucky there were a group of young people around my age and also good people in children and youth ministry who would take our questions seriously and treat us as uh, people with something to offer the community. And so in due time, I was prepared for baptism, First Holy Communion, confirmation, and I grew up in the church community that way. That's beautiful. And so um, that church that you attended mm. was a Catholic church, is that right? No, it was an Anglican. Was Anglican church, yeah. And so how would you describe um, that church was a, a very contemplative style of church. Was it, like, if you were to think about mm. the streams, would you it would, with one of them? One thing I really appreciated about it, and I still really bless God for, is that it made it, it was a strong on liturgical tradition. It was in the broadly Catholic tradition, but it was also very clear that this was not just something that we did in a building between ourselves and God. 
that the, the gospel made claims on our lives in terms of social justice. So we were always involved in advocacy and protest and fundraising um, and TIA as the agency. Um, I, mean, I think the first biblical verse I learned was to do justice, love mercy and walk humbly with God, that that was built in. So I think the social justice idea and the incarnationality of mm. sacramental life um, fed me and shaped me. Yeah, that's beautiful. And so what about your church now where you go? So you are at uh, Christchurch, Brunswick? Correct. I'm yep. the pastor. So that's just very close to Sydney Road, a very beautiful church. And I often speak in there on my way to uh, Ridley and just spend time in that beautiful space just for some private prayer because it's open, mm. which is such a gift to the local community. How would you describe Christchurch, Brunswick, now, in terms of its tradition? Oh, it's, it's my home. It's hard to speak about something you love so much. Um, it's, it's deeply engaged with the local community because it's deeply passionate about the love of Jesus. Um, and Brunswick is a very diverse but really quite strongly secular area. And we've got the best thing on offer and we want people to have access to that joy, the joy of a relationship with Jesus, the joy of eternal life. Um, so we have a parish cafe that's open four days a week. Um, and one day a week we use it as a free lunch for people who are in need, as a concrete living out of our faith uh, and the claims the gospel makes on us. But we're also very devoted to nurturing people's prayer life and faith life, their understanding uh, of the faith and, and as, you, as you mentioned, to have the church open for prayer. Mm -hmm. uh, so in, if, the, if the sun's up, the church is open and people can come in and spend time in a place that's set aside for silence and contemplation in a very, very busy, very exciting, very noisy part of the city. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it is a real oasis. And I know that um, the, um, the senior minister and anyone who lives in the home um, and the students who are studying theology who also live there are invited to be part of daily morning prayer, mm -hmm. which is such a beautiful practice. So that praying together, praying through the daily office is definitely a strong tradition. And I know that your church also takes the prayer requests that are written down by the visitors and prays for them. Thanks to praying for correct. a week for those prayer mm. requests, which is just such a beautiful gift to the community. So um, in terms of your, um, are there any other significant events or books or people in your life that sort of nudged you towards thinking about going to Wales? What led you to go there? I think I'll only fully understand any of my actions on the other side of death, but um, yeah. it was the longing of the heart to give myself completely to Jesus. Uh, and that's why the religious life, the life that is lived in community with an absolute focus on love of God and figuring out how to be uh, his presence in the world in that way, I was very strongly attracted to that. And I remember I read one book that I came across that was put out in 92 that was a collection of interviews of young Anglican nuns in different houses around the UK. And I read it and I thought, these women are quite uh, normal in their relatable. They have the same frustrations and questions and hopes and desires. This might actually be something that I can map myself onto. And so I sent off an email 
and got into contact with a nun in Oxford at a community there who's been a mentor and a spiritual guide for me ever since and just thought this could be a reality and, what, and, and to develop an understanding of what it might actually mean. And uh, so uh, can you tell us a little bit about what life is really like in a monastic community? We've seen these gorgeous images, uh, we've learned a little bit from that about the kinds of activities that are carried out. Mm. But in terms, I remember you, uh, you did mention to me that, um, that there's a practice of, of praying for certain amounts of hours a day and also a practice of making sure that you're Yes, so uh, the, the shape of a day is framed by prayer. There are five times a day when we gather in chapel to pray, beginning at seven in the morning and the last one slightly after eight at night, five services, but then also there's an expectation that each sister spends two hours each day in personal contemplative prayer. And I'll speak a bit more about how I found beginning that uh, when I stand up. But then between that, there's all the work of keeping a large, it's an 18th century house, keeping that going. And we've always got loads of guests who come to, to have time where they can step aside from the demands of their life and drop into a place dedicated to prayer. And so they need to have their sheets washed and their rooms vacuumed and their food cooked. And the garden takes a lot of work. There's also a commitment, especially over the last 10 years or so, to doing reforesting work. Um, laying new hedges, uh, working with the local bodies doing that. But that's always, the reality is always having to stand up from a task before you've happy, happily finished it because it's time to go and pray again. And that is so important that there's actually, you know, I could be, I worked in, I was a librarian for a spell and I'd be just finishing cataloging a new batch of books and I want to get them out before lunch so the sisters can see them and read and the bell would go. Oh no, oh no Jesus is a bit more important yeah. even than a really good book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So constantly being called back. Yeah. And you asked about um, reconciliation. The reality of living under one roof with uh, about 10 other people and we don't go out to work. All our work is within the property. So the same people you sleep next door to, you're working with them, praying with them, eating with them, spending social time with them. And we're all really, really different people with different opinions and different habits. So there's inevitably, you know, not, not conflict, but things rubbing up against each other. And it's how things rub up against each other they become smooth and perfect over time. But it means there needs to be a really strong focus on kindness and forgiveness and seeking and giving forgiveness. So twice a day, at the Eucharist in the middle of the day, and then just before we go to bed, we, we just say together a set prayer that we have failed to love God and failed to love each other, and we seek God's forgiveness and one another's forgiveness. And we say it while we're bowing. And then we stand up and we can, there's a real sense of being set free to walk together again. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's beautiful. So uh, I'm wondering, uh, you know, you're, you're moving now towards uh, discerning your path. You've left the monastic community. You're thinking about ordained ministry. Uh, what, um, 
and you may answer this in your talk, um, the contemplative practices that you've mm. carried in, and I suppose you'll talk about that a bit later. Mm. But I'm just wondering, are there any passages of scripture, and particularly stories of Jesus, that really resonate with you for the contemplative life? Well, I mean, it, it, it's very black and white in a way. Jesus made it a priority to spend time apart from his ministry, and his ministry was even more important than cataloging new books. He was saving the world. But he still took time aside to be with his heavenly father in intimate discourse to, to fuel and to rejoice in each other. And, but then there's also, and I'll come back to this at the end, um, I want us to spend some time praying together in silence. The image of the gospels, which I come back to time and time and time again, as a model for contemplative prayer, is at the Last Supper when the beloved disciple is leaning on the breast of Jesus. And just the idea of feeling his breath going in and out and hearing his heart, that's all it is. That's all, that's all contemplative prayer is. I can skip the talk now. That's it. <laughs> We've got it in a nutshell. That is truly a beautiful image, actually, to leave uh, in our minds uh, because there's something so visceral about mm. it. You know? And last week we did a, an exercise where we stepped into a story and tried to imagine ourselves and put us in that story. And uh, I can really say that during this last week I've actually been thinking and returning to that story. Mm. It was the parting of the Red Sea. And uh, yeah, as, the, as I think about the waters um, coming back into place and just vanquishing the enemies and just thinking, I... Uh, I have nothing to fear that God is, no, I have nothing to doubt in terms of God being for me because he's so harshly for me. Mm. Because I was there at that Red Sea when it parted and when it came back again. So, um, yes, I think it's beautiful to put ourselves in the shoes of people in that story. And that John one is just a beautiful example that I haven't thought of, so mm. that's good. Uh, so I'm going to ask you now uh, one last question, and I've asked all our guests this question, and that is... Um, of the streams, uh, the six streams, is there one that you feel you're less familiar with, um, maybe even a little bit resistance, resistant towards, mm. uh, and have you uh, tried to actively open yourself up uh, to the goodness of that in some way? Mm. It's such a thought-provoking question. Uh, and I'm, I'm envious of those who've had the benefit of, of walking through this over the last few months and getting to soak in some of these different streams and traditions, because I'd love to, uh, to have that chance. And now I've realized they're on videos, so yeah. I will. Yeah. Can I answer in two weeks? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I do... I do think that one of the beauties about the monastic life is that everything does have to be drawn together, it does have to be an integrated life. But that said, to have a clear and active role for social justice, to be active as an agent of Jesus' love in the world, which he loves, in which we are his hands and his feet, is, why, is, is among the reasons why I came out of the monastery and I'm offering myself to be among his people, completely given, but among yeah. people. Yeah. And also, I wish I could have heard um, what you said about the charismatic life and what it means to be truly open to the working of the Holy Spirit. Mm. It's an accusation often laid against people in my tradition that we're a bit 
we like our liturgies written down and uh, knowing what's going to happen. And sometimes I'd, I'd love us to be more uh, throwing ourselves on the mercy of the Holy Spirit and seeing what might happen. So there you go. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us. I'm going to let you take the stand and uh, share, share something a bit more with us. So I'd like to speak about prayer, and prayer simply is relationship with Jesus. Are we? And as we started to speak about before, contemplative prayer is being completely attentive to the fact that we are in Jesus' company, being given to him and paying attention to him. Because our attention and our time is sort of the main thing that we have to give. We can't give Jesus money. We can't give him presents. We can give him our gaze, our loving gaze. And that works on us in a way that is transformative and life-giving. But it's also, oh dear. It's just not. Technical issues, please stand by. How are we sounding now? That sounds like less. How's that? Okay, I'll just let it be nice and close. I'm reminded of on the night of his arrest, Jesus in the garden asking his disciples, stay with me, stay awake with me, watch with me, pray with me. What a privilege that we have the chance to say yes to that invitation. And when, were we going to read the psalm? Because I'm going to talk about the psalms, so we better read the psalm. <laughs> Do, if you stand there, can you use that one? And I will offer sacrifices in his sanctuary with exaltion. 
I will sing, I will sing praises to the Lord. O oh Lord, hear my voice when I cry, have mercy upon me and listen me. My heart has said of you, seek his face, your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me or thrust your servant aside in displeasure. For you have been my helper. Do not cast me away or forsake me, O God of my salvation. Though my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord will take me up. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in an even path, for they lie in wait for me. Do not give me over to the will of my enemies, for false witnesses have risen against me, and those who breathe out violence. But I believe that I shall surely see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I'll wait for the Lord, stand firm, and he will strengthen your heart, and wait, I say, for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. I love this psalm. It's, it's so beautiful. I considered about nine or ten different psalms about what I wanted to speak about. But I think that um, there's just such rich language and imagery about seeking God and trusting God. And it all gets summed up in verse 10. My heart has said of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, will I seek. Contemplative prayer is seeking the face and gazing upon the beauty of the face of Jesus, knowing that he looks at us with his infinite love and mercy. So I want to speak about the discipline of what it might mean to, to, to seek to look at the face of Jesus, and then also what it is as a broader way of life and what fruit it might bear. Uh, as I mentioned, I'm not from a religious family, and not from a Christian family, my dad is a Buddhist. So just as contemplative prayer is very important in my daily life, meditation is for him. And over the years, we've had really respectful and fruitful conversations about what is and isn't the same in these two practices. Of the things that there is a lot that we hold in common, silence, humility, gratitude, joy, handling distraction, growth in self-knowledge, growing attentiveness to other people, feeling part of a community, connected to wider creation, being more in touch with our bodies, often particularly our breath, being anchored in the present moment. All of this we hold in common, also with, I believe, mindfulness practices, which can be so ben beneficial for people's mental health. But that's not all that there is. Prayer is not just the same as meditation, because it is intimately grounded in the person of Jesus Christ, who wishes us to spend time with him. So in the order we had as part of our, expecta our expected prayer was two hours each of silent prayer. I did think this was a typo when I was first given the documents. I couldn't believe they would really expect that, because it's really hard. It's hard to focus on anything for an hour for me and the form of focus which prayer is 
is a focus on not focusing. It's this kind of holding a double, uh, a, a deliberate emptiness and receptivity. It's very difficult to cultivate an inner silence rather than just an absence of noise. I often began to experience it as mainly a string of different distractions and disappointments coming up against my own irritation about the other things I could be getting on with. And also all of my own insufficiencies, all of my own sins which usually I can be busy enough not to think about. There is no hiding in silent prayer. There's never any hiding from God, but in silent prayer, you also can't hide from yourself. I was there in my need in front of God and in front of all my distractions, and it was hard. But I learned that the hardness was all right, that the desire to be attentive, the effort made to turn my attention back to the Lord after each time realizing I'd gone off on another path, that that was true prayer, that was love. That was the offering I could make to my beloved. And it really is about time, about committing to be in the present moment. It's so easy for me to live, you know, 20 years in the future or five months in the past, but prayer asks me to be right here, right now. There's no such thing as transcending this moment of time and space to some special realm. Reality is not something to escape. Reality is where God lives. So we say yes to it. Yes to this gift of this moment with God. Because this moment is the only time God can get to us. And it has its disappointments and its difficulty, but we can say yes to inhabit it deeply, to keep our eyes fixed on the truest reality, God. And this means that a contemplative point of view is a one that's full of thanksgiving, of praise and of love because it's a view onto God. And we know that he loves us and is looking back at us even as we attempt to look at him. I was also very encouraged as I made these discoveries to know that I wasn't alone in finding them difficult. The older nuns are full of helpful stories um, that they would tell us over and over again whenever we said, Sister, I'm having a really hard time in prayer. There's a good one about Michael Ramsey, who is the Archbishop of Canterbury, who was once asked how long he prayed for each morning, and he said, about two minutes, but it takes me 58 minutes to do, <laughs> which I found encouraging. And there was also a moment of breakthrough when I realized that prayer wasn't something I had to do out of my own strength. That in the silence of the contemplating heart, the prayer that happens there is not my prayer. It's the prayer of the Holy Spirit. It's the prayer of God looping me into the eternal love between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The one who searches the heart interceding for us with sighs too deep for words. And one writer I found hugely helpful on this is an English nun called Ruth Burrows. And this month she celebrated her 100th birthday. It's an extremely healthy lifestyle. And she says, prayer is not something we do. It's a gift from God. It's what he does. But our job is to be there and entrust ourselves to his presence. And that can take a lot of energy and work to be really, really where you are. 
to put ourselves in front of his overflowing, loving presence, to gaze on it and soak it up. One priest I know compared it to being in the presence of the sun, which gives its warmth and its light, and our job is to receive. I did say to him, I'm an Australian, all I can hear is melanoma, melanoma, but it's a good image. The idea of interior silence is a difficult thing to explain and it's even more difficult to do because it's so tempting to fill up things with words and it's hugely important that we do speak to Jesus at length with words uh, frequently to pour out to him in complete confidence our, our love and our worry and our desire to speak freely to him as one does a friend. But in this relationship of prayer, there is also a need for deep listening and therefore for silence. Another story. A journalist, a journalist once asked Mother Teresa, oh, I hear you pray for two hours a day. You must have an awful lot to say to God. And she said, I mostly listen. Oh, well, then what does God say? He listens too. And I love that image of, of two people listening to each other in a warm, fruitful silence. Because silence can tap into something of the mystery of God. Some things cannot be put into words. A great Spanish monk and mystic of the 16th century, John of the Cross, said, silence is God's first language. Everything else is a translation. To meet him in silence is to meet him on his terms. But how do we begin? How do we still down all of these words and these worries which can fill our heads? It's hard, but of course God gives us gifts and tools for everything he asks us to do. And there is no better way than the great gift of the word of God. Meditation on a verse of scripture or a few words can become a still point into silence. And of course, then it's not about analyzing the text or deconstructing it, but almost breathing it and looking at God through it. One nun I know speaks about it as being like a runway, something solid and reliable that her prayer can go along and then launch off into the space of silent adoration. And the Bible is so full of strong imagery uh, I won't start lifting them off, we'll be here forever, but images like the Good Shepherd and the vine or the spirit hovering over the water, these can be the point to still down and adore the mystery of God. Which is why I'd like us to come back at the end to that passage from John. But it doesn't even need to be a biblical passage always. I can look at the Lord and say, I love you, I love you, I love you, until the words can ebb away into the stillness which still says, I love you. Or to repeat the holy name, Jesus, 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 to breathe the name of the Savior. At this point, I'd like to change direction a little bit. What I've said so far might sound a little bit about myself, me and Jesus, what we get up to. That is not a proper picture of contemplation. Prayer is always a joint endeavor of all the people of God. Even when we're alone, we're swept up in the great prayer of the church which ascends to heaven. We're always joined in the spirit. 
But there's also the embodied, solid accountability. If I wasn't expected to be in chapel two hours a day, I would have stayed in bed. I would have read a book. I would have gone for a walk. Doing something hard is much more likely to happen if other people do it with us and encourage us and commit to it. And even more than that, the quality of silence to be in a church or a chapel or a room or a cafe of people who are attending to God, there's a special quality to that silence which is not attainable alone. So prayer is shared, but prayer also changes us. It changes the way we live as disciples. It changes the way we live in every way because it exposes us to the love of Jesus. It puts us under his influence and his longing is to make our hearts like his heart. One of the lines of scripture that so often bubbles up within me are the parts from Ezekiel about taking my heart of stone and giving me a heart of flesh. This is how the spirit works on us in prayer. And when our heart is changed, our lives change. John of the Cross again. He said that the proof of contemplation is that it bears the fruits of charity in the lives of those who pray. To know if someone is praying, see if they are acting in love. Because the life of prayer and the life in common, the shared life, are so closely linked. They're two sides of the same coin. They're the two halves of the great commandment to love God and love neighbor. If we allow ourselves to gaze at the Lord, to expose ourselves to his radiance and his light, when we stand up and turn to the people around us, they will look different. We will see them in his light. We will begin that process of learning to see him in them and see them as he does. This was vitally important while living in a small religious community under one roof, but it's true for the whole human community. A heart transformed by prayer becomes a heart like Jesus' heart, which loves mercy and justice and truth and speaking out against anything which harms those he loves. So at this point, prayer and action are bound together. Prayer and ethics, prayer and evangelization. All of these are bound together because this is the life of seeking the face of the Lord. That is the life of contemplation, gazing at him and letting him change us. What a joy, what an invitation. Thanks be to God. That's a great deal of speaking about silence, which is a little bit perverse. So I'd now like us to enter silence together and spend 10 minutes. So I'll, I've put up this picture. There's a quote from uh, Saint Teresa of Avila, who was this extraordinary nun in the 16th century, who said, prayer is nothing else than an intimate sharing between friends, taking time frequently to be alone with him who we know loves us. And that is a sculpture from the 13th century from Belgium, showing that scene of the beloved disciple leaning on the breast of the Lord. And uh, an art historian who's also a nun called Wendy Beckett wrote about this 
saying prayer is essentially resting one's heart on the heart of God, certain that he knows. Prayer is complete surrender with faith that resting on God will mean human fulfillment, which is what this sculpture shows. So I'll just ask that we spend 10 minutes letting God use the time in our hearts as he chooses. I don't have an agenda for you. I don't have a program. I don't have steps. I have just this invitation.